Hey, listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is horror for kids, and we're joined by guest Trevor Williamson from Slay House Lit Bits. Trevor Williamson is an editor for Slay House Publishing and co-host of the Slay House Publishing Presents Lit Bits podcast. He didn't create that name, so don't blame him for the mouthful. He's an avid horror fan and has recently published an anthology of genre fiction and horror, science fiction, and dark fantasy called Tales of Slayhouse 2021. He lives in Arkansas with his partner and his dog, neither of whom have outstanding warrants. So let's get spooky. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I am doing great. I'm super excited to join you today to talk about our topic. It's awesome. Yes, and I've been looking forward to this one too. Just kind of behind the scenes, typically with this podcast and all the guests we have coming on, I kind of messaged them about what topic they wanted to talk about, and they messaged me back. And most of our guests have had one or two ideas about some of the movies or books or things we could talk about. And then that's kind of been it. Like we, we set up the cornerstones for the episode, and then we just kind of roll it when we happen. You're the person, though, that we started talking about this concept, and I think we've sent probably 500 emails back and forth. <laughs> I know we have a lot of stuff we're going to get into today, so I'm super excited about this. Yeah, it, it's one of my favorite topics. I really love, uh, I love literature. I love storytelling to begin with, but you, you get me, you know, kids stuff, kids lit for sure. Um, I absolutely love it. Uh, and kids horror, I think, is just one of the most special kinds of horror out there. So, yeah, let's go ahead and dive straight into this because we do have so many points we're going to hit today. Typically with these episodes, when we open up, I ask our guests, what is the trope we're talking about that day? But I feel like with horror for kids, that's pretty self-explanatory. It's, it's horror and it's for kids. Uh, so instead, I want to twist this question around a little bit for you. So I want to say instead of what is horror for kids? why is horror for kids? And I know this is a really big swing of a question to open the episode with. It's huge. It's like a whole, it's a whole philosophy, right? Um, whenever we ask the why question, and I ask the why question, like why science fiction? Why fantasy? Why horror? You know, why any genre um, at all? Why literature to begin with? When we ask those big why questions, really what we're asking is like a philosophy question, right? How does this stuff in our lives at all. So I teach um, world history, or not world history, world literature for a bunch of like college kids, right? Um, and the question I'm always posing to them is like, wh where does this fit in our lives? Why does this fit in our lives? And I think that children's horror is super important because it fits in a formative moment in our lives when we are trying to figure out who we are in relationship to everyone else in the universe and who we are in relationship to all of the very many kind of uh, like social and political framework, right, of the world, because the world is exceedingly complex. And I think as a child, you always think of yourself um, as, as just like, isn't this the same for everybody? And I, I think there's an awakening through childhood when you begin to realize, right, that 
there's a lot more going on than maybe necessarily, uh, than you know necessarily, right? You are not actually the center of the universe. There's other things going on out there and these stories maybe help us process that. Exactly, yeah. And I, I think that what works about horror so well is that and when you're a kid and you're encountering new things and you're suddenly having to realize like, man, I didn't even account for this, you know, in my life. I, I've never even thought of this. What could be there, right? What's on the other side of this wall, whatever the, whether the wall be like literal or metaphorical, right? I think when you face something new, there's a terror about it because that, that moment of passing into something unknown can be a really insecure moment. And so horror allegorizes for us, for kids, allegorizes that process of having to face something that we don't know or that we, we struggle with, you know, that we um, don't quite understand. And it gives us an ability to explore safely, you know, a new frontier, a new boundary for ourselves. And hopefully by confronting the scary thing, it can empower us to understand who we are and, and where we are and how life actually works without tremendous risk. Right. And that's that was going to kind of be my note, the thing you ended on there with the processing these emotions and, and these feelings and this expanding worldview without risk. We'll get into our background as kids with horror in just a minute here, but I really like the fact that with the horror genre, if kids are reading the horror genre, they get exposed to stuff that is terrifying to them, but they get to do it in a venue where there are absolutely no risks. Like you, you might lose a night of sleep or two, um, but you get, to, you get to grapple with these emotions that you're going to have to face eventually in your lives. Like nobody gets through life completely without fear. Nobody gets through life without having some sort of an event that scares them, uh, whether that's applying for jobs or whether that's like moving out of your house and going to college whatever it is, if those real world life events with real stakes and consequences are the first time that you are ever having to grapple with, I'm scared, I'm nervous about this, I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone, that can be problematic, that can be really bad. I like with horror for kids, having this avenue where you you get scared, you, you have to handle these emotions. And another thing to kind of segue into here is, I think horror hits differently for kids because of this. Um, I've seen a lot of discourse on Twitter and things like that, where people are talking about scary movies don't really scare me anymore. I think I've become desensitized to them. I've watched too many scary movies or I've read too many scary books or, you know, things like that. And I think that talking to a bunch of adults about horror is very different than talking to a bunch of kids about horror, because as adults, we are a little bit desensitized because we watch so much. We're also a little bit desensitized um, because we understand this separation between fact and fiction a little bit more now. I can yeah. tell a story about murderous zombies and go to sleep at night and be like, yeah, that's not happening tonight. Yeah, I think um, you're hitting on a, a point that I kind of want to add to that, right? I don't so much think of us as like desensitized to stuff. Um, I can tell you right now, I am, I am not desensitized from violence. I have seen so much violent fiction so much violent media. And yet if I saw real world violence, I am not desensitized to that. That hurts. And I think the same is for horror, right? Like, sure, okay, a scary movie doesn't scare me, but there are things that can scare me to my core as an adult any day of the week. I think the difference is that we are as adults perhaps better equipped to, to note what you say is the separation between fact and fiction. We are perhaps better equipped 
to handle these things in our media because we have perhaps better mechanisms of self-regulation, right? Or we have better mecha mechanisms for recognizing, you know, the real danger in something and the fictional danger of something. And I think too, we think about our media consumption or, or something like that. I, I think that there builds an intelligence toward it, an ability to, to look at horror and see what horror is doing that is absolutely terrifying without having that like heart palpitating reaction. I can still go see a very scary movie and feel like, you know what, this is conceptually absolutely terrifying and I am terrified of it without having a physiological reaction, you know, like you might have uh, when you were younger or something like that. Right. So let's go back for just a second and let's talk about our childhoods. Because speaking of those physiological reactions, I know we both had kind of unique approaches to this. And I guess I'll start. I, I grew up in a fairly conservative household. My parents were not the type of people that would ban horror. They were not the type of people that, that would refuse to let me watch horror. It just wasn't for them. So it was never available to me. And growing up, uh, I grew up in the 90s, aging myself. Growing up, when I did, it wasn't like we had Netflix. And if I had different interests than my parents, there wasn't this easy route to access it. I had to convince them to drive me to the movie theater and sit through the movie with me, or I had to convince them to drive me to Blockbuster and then actually pay money for the thing with this like skull and their eyes popping out of their heads on the cover. Um, but the, there was a lot of, if they're not into it, I'm not allowed to be into it. So my horror awakening, I guess I'll call it, didn't really come until middle school, uh, really high school, when I was going into the library and finding some of these books we're about to talk about with goosebumps, with scary stories to tell in the dark, anything that the library had, I was able to read that at school. Libraries are important. Schools are important. Um, I was able to read that while I was there, but at least in that safe space, I was able to access this and kind of get into all the stuff that we're about to talk about. But with that very delayed introduction to horror, I found, especially when I started watching horror movies, a lot of the stuff that I was getting access to scared the crap out of me <laughs> and created that physiological response that you were just talking about. I remember it, it, might have, it might not have been the first horror movie that I watched, but one of the first movies that I watched was M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. Oh, um, wow. So uh, I was at a friend's house, it was a sleepover, watched it. And I remember for the next like couple of weeks, I was going to sleep with my bed just lined with cups of water. Uh, <laughs> I was under the pillow and I was not about to get got by the green alien things. And I think if I had had a little bit more exposure to it beforehand, maybe I could have built up some sort of a tolerance for it. I, maybe that movie wouldn't have hit quite as hard for me. I don't know. But how about you? What what was your first real introduction to horror as a kid? I, you know, I, I feel like we probably could have just copy pasted the same story over <laughs> because because my ex, my experience was so very similar. Um, so I was I was also raised in a in incredibly uh, conservative household, I, not like a not like a weird quiverful kind of conservative household. But I was homeschooled for a number of reasons. I was on the I, I was on kind of, let's call it the accelerated path for a lot of children. I learned very, very quickly and I had a lot of attention problems because I was not being challenged. And so uh, my parents kind of made the decision um, both religiously and also just uh, pragmatically to remove me from 
uh, a Christian private school that I had been attending for my primary education and just homeschooled me because they didn't want me to have the, a, a secular education like you might get at a public school. So I was raised in a, a household where, you know, the cable was not a thing. Uh, we, we didn't have cable growing up. I was allowed to watch anything I wanted on PBS. And that was a, about it, you know. Um, and I remember when I was growing up, my first kind of foray into horror was actually sneaking in between commercials um, when my, my parents were kind of out of the room or something like that. I would, I would sneak in and um, change the channel over to one of those horror anthology shows. I can't remember the, the title of it today, but uh, I think it was like Eerie Indiana or something like that. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah, that, that show in the 90s, I would just like skip over to watch, you know, whatever sweaty horror show, you, you know, was was on at that moment in time. And, and my parents would come back to the room and I'd switch the channel back real fast. And so that was kind of how I, I caught snippets of horror. We would go to the library very often. Um, my mother was uh, and, and father kind of oddly enough even as they were very into trying to protect me from certain media and, and horror was absolutely one of those things. They were like, it's from the devil. It only comes from evil. You should not be reading this stuff. And Goosebumps was huge at the time. The only books that I've ever burned were, were Goosebumps books. And, and that's a real that's a real thing. My, my parents actually held a religious book burning in my house when I was growing up. But they'd take me to the library and they'd let me read almost anything I wanted. And so on our library visits, I would sneak off um, and I'd find a Goosebumps book or something like that. And I'd read like a chapter or two. And then I'd, I'd like feel the shame of, oh, I've done something bad, you know, and, and get all sweaty and, and run away from it. And that just kind of continued up until I think my teenage years. Um, like you, I saw my first real horror movie was M. Night Shyamalan's uh, The Sixth Sense. No way. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I watched that movie and it gave me nightmares for, for 30 years. I mean, it just really messed me up for a very long time. And I, I remember not being able to recover from that. It was like there was like a triumvirate of three movies that I saw. I saw uh, Sixth Sense that really messed me up. Jaws forever messed me up. I will never get in water because of Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the Tim Burton one. Okay. Yeah, that, that one, for whatever reason, uh, just left this indelible mark on my brain. Um, and I will never not see that movie and remember my 13-year-old fear. And then I kind of left horror behind until grad school when I started hanging out with a bunch of other like-minded literate folk and one of them was really into horror and specifically children's horror and I was really into comic books that was really what I was studying in grad school and found that there was a remarkable kind of uh, crossover between a lot of the comic books of the 1950s and a lot of the the children's horror that she was researching from the 90s and the, the early 2000s uh, and that kind of led me on this path of uncovering a lot more about uh, children's horror but also just horror in general um, so I'm kind of a late bloomer to horror but I, I also think that it's always been a fascination for me because there's there's still that element of the taboo right there's still that element of you, you buy a book with uh, a bunch of skulls on the cover and you think like, oh, this is, uh, you know, this is a real treat. 
that's really cool with the comics because the next section that we were going to dig into, we're going to kind of go through a, a timeline here, I guess, of children's horror and, and track its progress throughout the ages. And one of the first big topics that we were hoping to talk about was EC Comics. Uh, so I don't have any exposure to these comics. So you're kind of the the master comic. Yeah. Okay, so I'm obsessed with EC Comics, uh, just the history of comics, because I, I think that when we look at comic books, everybody thinks of like DC or Marvel as being, you know, kind of like the big dominant forces in, in comic books. And uh, while that may be true today, that wasn't always the case. They had a lot of really stiff competition um, through the, the 1940s and the 1950s. So um, EC Comics was originally found as, founded as educational comics by a guy named Max Gaines back in the, the 1940s. Gaines was, uh, had a, a pretty heavy hand in the comics industry when he first kind of began as the comic industry was ramping up in the very early 40s. And he saw comics as a unique opportunity to create children's literature that could reach kids where they were and be used for educational purposes. And so that was kind of the idea behind his company was he was going to create a series of comic books that were educational in nature, that celebrated literacy and helped promote kind of healthy reading habits for kids. And predictably, he made absolutely no money doing it because <laughs> nobody actually wants that. So Max Gaines died um, rather unfortunately in a boat crash in 1947. And uh, his son, William Gaines, uh, ended up taking the company. And William had no idea what the purpose of comics are. You know, he, ha he had really very little business sense for comics themselves. But one thing he did know was that nobody was reading boring educational comics. So he rebranded the company as uh, entertaining comics. Um, shortening it to EC Comics, and through the late 1940s began just kind of trying to figure out what was his, his philosophy going to be to try to rope in a youth readership. And as a result, he started creating crime comic books uh, in the late 1940s, and he scattered into a whole bunch of different genres. There were Western comics, there were science fiction comics, there were romance comics, which were really huge um, in the late 1940s. And then he kind of pioneered a brand for horror in comic books that was unlike anything anyone else had ever seen. And so in 1950, three major tales, uh, like, like three major anthologies of horror launched aimed at a youth readership. There were Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, and then The Haunt of Fear. And each of those series would only run from 1950 until about 1955, early 1955. And the reason why is because these comic books became so incredibly popular with children that it actually started to get national attention from a whole bunch of concerned parents who were seeing a change in youth culture at the time and wanted something to blame. So, um, of course, as, as we know now, I mean, what possibly could children have to think about or worry about in the late 1940s? 
we're talking about a generation of children who had just seen their parents leave and come back from the biggest war the earth had ever seen. And so I think that there's this consciousness, this public consciousness, not just on account of children who had seen their parents go off to war, but also the parents who were creating media who had just come back from the most terrifying theater of war they had ever seen. And so they, they begin to explore that font of horror, I think, through comic books. And, and so the children of this moment, you know, are kind of reading and consuming this media, which in many ways is a lot of fun. And like we say, um, kind of allegorize some of the, the, the horrors of the world, you know, lurking out there. Because even post World War II, you know, we have a, an entire country that's worried about have we fallen to the communists, right? We have to be worried about um, Russia and the, and the rise of the Soviet Union uh, because all of these things are happening uh, at the same time. You know, there's, we've just unleashed nuclear bombs on Japan. How do you deal with that, you know, as a society? How do you deal with the collective guilt of having wiped out millions of people in the flash of an eye? And so these comics creators were trying to allegorize some of that I think for their, their comics audiences. And as a result, they, these comics, especially Tales, Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, uh, Haunt of Beer, you know, all of these things, what they're doing is, is um, they're, they're creating uh, content that I think is very, not just controversial, but I think very critical of the way that the world is and the way that the world works. Um, if you read any of these comics, they're deeply, satirical, deeply ironic, horribly violent, uh, graphic, I mean, beyond almost anything anyone had really seen. And so as you have this youth culture who's kind of changing around the, the political moment, the social and economic moment of the late 1940s and early 1950s, you have a whole bunch of people who are just looking to scapegoat anything they can to explain why their kids um, are maybe having a hard time dealing with the world. And comic books ended up becoming that scapegoat uh, for whatever reason. There was this psychiatrist. He was a youth psychiatrist, a bit of a, a quack in certain circles. But he was really concerned with violence in inner city populations. And um, in uh, uh, Brooklyn, I think, uh, maybe it wasn't Brooklyn. You're going to have to check my facts on this. Um, but there was, a, there was a, a series of murders called the teen thrill kills, I think is what they were called, in the early 1950s that drew a lot of media attention. So um, this, this psychiatrist, his name was Frederick Wortham, um, he kind of came in and, and put this stamp of approval on like, well, the reason why the kids are bad these days is because of comic books. And he brought this body of hand-selected evidence, which was ridiculous to begin with, but he brought this, this body of evidence up um, and kind of circulated around this campaign to blame comic books for everything. And it got the attention of the US government to the point that there was a Senate um, subcommittee in, on juvenile delinquency that met in 1954, led by Senator Estes Kefauver, who was looking for a vice presidential bid um, at that point in time. And so he, he kind of presided over these very public hearings on whether or not comic books were causing juvenile delinquency. 
And as a result, the only person to come up and defend comic books, the only person from the industry was of course, William Gaines. And, and uh, William Gaines, again, not a very eloquent uh, speaker, not really a whole lot of business sense. He came in kind of with the attitude of this Senate subcommittee hearing is absolutely ridiculous. I don't believe that horror can harm kids whatsoever and really didn't know how to explain what it was that his company was doing or the satirical value of any of the horror he was writing. As a result, the entire industry feared that they were about to get banned completely out of stores, right? Just, just completely eradicated from the market. And so they adopted a 1940s film code for comic books to censor comic books and basically said, uh, we're not going to distribute your stuff if you don't follow by this film code uh, or, or this new comics code authority that they had adapted from this 1940s film code and kind of completely eradicated um, uh, any chance at, at like a real genuine kind of scary horror for, for at least like the next 20 years. There's a lot I want to come back and unpack on this now. With that big reaction against horror and these horror comic books, it's eerie how much that parallels things that are still going on nowadays. It seems like any time that the general public gets scared about something or they get nervous about a big change happening in our culture, the tendency is to go react against things that are the reaction to those causes of change instead of reacting to the change itself. As you were telling the story about uh, the senator bringing out evidence against the horror books, and I'm going to get a little political here for a second, who cares? Um, <laughs> it, that's like a perfect echo of, uh, in the Katanji Brown-Jackson Supreme Court affirmation, Ted Cruz brings out these book, uh, these, these pictures from a book called The Anti-Racist Baby, and he's, he's trying to use the pictures from this book to ask Kintanji Brown-Jackson if she's a racist. And it made absolutely no sense. If you've ever read the book, if you've looked at the book, the, the whole point of the book is to combat racism. And he's using it as an example of racism. And it just all gets so very weird and twisted. It seems very similar to what we're talking about here with horror there's this big cultural movement happening in America right now, and it's, it's making a lot of people scared and nervous. Um, so they're lashing out against these really odd things that are more, I hate to call it a symptom because that makes it sound bad, but the, the, they're more symptom than cause. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. One of the problems with trying to address anything, like any kind of social problem, is that oftentimes these problems are very complex or they're results of very complex systems that are not so easy to, to correct, right? Right. If you really want to do better at trying to, to help kids adjusting to the world, there's so much more that has to happen. Uh, there's so much more than just, oh, well, we need to get rid of the comic books. That's not even the point. The comic books aren't the problem. The problem is, you know, the fact that some of these kids hadn't seen their parents for quite a long time because uh, they didn't know if their kids or, or their parents were even coming back. You have a, a, an entire generation of media creators who had been sent off to war to kill people they didn't even know and, and had seen the people right beside them, sometimes torn in half by shrapnel fire or, or what have you. 
you you have a, a government who who literally dropped atomic bombs on on two cities and and completely wiped those cities off the face of the earth. You have political despots all over the place just vying, jockeying for power, and at the same moment establishing an industry that continues to chew through people in order to make profit for those at the very, very top. It's very difficult to approach the real systematic changes that need to be made in order to smooth out the way, you know, for a generation that is coming into the world and suddenly starting to see that the world around them is much scarier, much more difficult to navigate than, you know, they were necessarily told it might have been. And, and so rather than adopt an easy solution, right, it's easy to, or, or rather than adopt a solution that is effective, it's easy to look for an easy solution, which is just blame something, right? Throw the blame away from your political um, obligation, right? And, and just throw it on something easy. Oh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not guns that's the problem, right? It's, it's, the it's metal music. It's video games. Metal music. <laughs> Whereas really those are like the coping mechanisms or their, their escapism, um, their, their ways to process those complicated things. They're not the cause of the complicated things. Yeah. So what's interesting, I think, about this moment is that there is a lot of popularity in horror, right? right. Uh, these comic books uh, weren't just circulating. You look at the actual circulation numbers and an average, uh, an average comic book might sell like a million copies, right? But that's not the actual circulation number. The circulation number is anywhere between seven and, and 10 million people reading that one um, particular issue, right? Because what happened was you're a kid, you get a, you get a comic for a dime or whatever, and, uh, and you read it and you're like, oh man, this, this was amazing. And you trade them around, you spread them to this kid. And so, so this kid walks home with this comic rolled up in his pocket and he reads it and then you know, he passes it to the next kid. And so, you know, for any one particular comic, we're talking anywhere from like, you know, seven, maybe as many as 15 different people reading that singular issue and, and passing it around. So, and comics were everywhere. I mean, they, they really were just, just in, in every American home. And if you're looking for a scapegoat, it's really easy to say, oh, well, of course it's comic books, right? But why that's important, I think, is, is first off, we get a real taste for what horror looks like, what kids get sweaty thinking about. And you have a lot of people, a lot of kids who read this stuff. And then 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, are creating new content for a new generation of readers. So if you look at a lot of the the greats of the previous generation of writers. You look at Stephen King, you look at R.L. Stein, and you ask them, what were some of your formative horror? They point back to EC Comics because EC Comics was what they were consuming. It's what all of these kids were consuming uh, growing up. And it, it, it creates kind of the, the formational locus, if you will, for their brand of horror. And when we talk about kids' horror from our generation, the stuff that we read and grew up with, which is, is kind of what I'm moving into, um, talking about uh, the big franchises, right? Um, we end up with 
um, horror that was greatly and deeply influenced by, you know, by easy comics uh, from the past. Yeah, I'm going to screw up this quote a little bit, but there's some there's some quote like there are no new ideas. There are just new approaches to old ideas or something like that. So, yeah, basically, I mean, that's kind of the idea. So there's another text that shows up in the 1980s. It's called um, Scary Stories to, to Tell in the Dark. And this is another one that a lot of our listeners are probably going to recognize uh, yeah. because it was one of those formative texts for a lot of people. What makes this text really special first is, uh, of course, the illustrations um, from Stephen Gamble. That is the first thing that pops to my mind anytime that somebody mentions this is that clown cover of, of I, th- I think it's volume one. Um, yeah, it is. Yep. Just the art style there was so unlike anything else anywhere in that middle school that I was in like regardless of the library like anywhere in the middle school you were not going to find another image that was as singularly terrifying as that sketch and not only that I think that it's terrifying even today like I have I have the the collection of books in my house I don't let it sit out on the the bed rest next to me when I sleep because it's, it's just cursed so with these books, you, you're saying we're kind of getting into the timeline where, where we're more, more around for this stuff. What was your first experience with Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark? What kind of an impression did it make, for, make on you out of the gate? And why do you think this franchise, these books have really stood the test of time? Yeah, so these stories are, first of all, I mean, the book is just genuinely terrifying to look at. And I think that uh, when you're a kid and you, and you see something interesting or you see something visually distinct, uh, it, can, it can imprint on you, right? It, it creates kind of a, a reaction in you. One of the things that I love about art um, and art history is that art was, uh, especially in the, the Middle Ages, right? Art was always intended to create and, and evoke a reaction out of you. There was this entire philosophy around art um, that basically said that, that art was intended to elicit a strong reaction um, that we might even call awe um, that was supposed to bring us closer to the divine, right? So art is intended to create a strong reaction. And I think that the same goes for for horror art, right? It elicits this incredibly visceral reaction from us. It draws us in. And I think that it opens our minds to these uh, new, strange possibilities that are kind of outside of ourselves. And for me, this book is that. I could not get within 10 feet of that book <laughs> as a kid. It was just too damn scary. And even, even today, I, I have to read it with all of the lights on because the artwork is just such a viscerally creepy reaction from me. They say to never judge a book by the cover, but I think this is a strong case to make an exception for that. <laughs> the, the cover sets such a strong tone that even before you've opened the book and started turning the pages, you're kind of on the edge of your seat. The hairs on the back of your neck are already standing up. It gives the words in the page just this extra amount of power. And I love Absolutely. it. And so when I come to this book, and, and the reason why I brought it up um, is because I, first off, I think we've all had that visceral experience of looking at the artwork in this book and just being like, whoa, it, you know, this is, this is no uh, Michelle Silverstein, right? Like this is not where the, the sidewalk ends, like 
this is the stuff of nightmares. Yes. And I think that too, the, the stories contained in this book uh, speak to a similar locus for, for, for horror storytelling that is gonna show up later. And that idea is that I think horror is a communal experience, right? It's something that needs to be shared. And this book in particular is written um, with the premise in mind that these are things that you will read to other people. They're stories for parents to read to their kids. They're stories for kids to read alone. They're stories for kids to read to one another. And the reason for that is that all of these stories as they were collected by Alvin Schwartz are really folk tales uh, or, or stories that are adapted into a very folk tale uh, style or shape. Uh, and these, these folk tales are very diligently researched and, and sourced from rural communities across the United States and uh, I think the UK. And so that, I think that seed, right, of, of horror storytelling is, is just sprinkled all throughout this book, this idea that horror is meant to be experienced together, right? And I think that the dialogue that's created, not just between the story and the reader, but especially that art and the reader is deeply influential in how we experience horror and how we experience uh, a story and, and the genre, the importance of the genre. And I think that that has an effect on a lot of the people who are creating horror today. You know, you look at, at horror artwork and the like, and there are a lot of new artists in the, the field of horror artwork that are drawing from uh, Stephen Gamble's artwork, you know, drawing from, from those experiences and trying to recombine, you know, a lot of that visceral experience for a new audience today. I wonder if I'm, I'm either going to jump the shark here or I'm going to throw it back a little bit, depending on the, the release schedule of these episodes. But <laughs> we, we've got an episode at some point in season one here where I talked to Shelley Grant about meta horror. Uh, we talk about mm. the idea that horror has these rules and we have this entire subgenre of our favorite genre that intentionally pokes fun at itself. And this, this whole genre has become so, like you were saying, communal that we're able to kind of riff on each other's ideas a little bit. And we didn't get into this there, but we were trying to isolate why, why does horror do this? Whereas like action movies don't really have that. They don't have that sense of community surrounding it. They don't have that mm. sense of building on what's already come before. Like Fast and Furious 10 is the same movie as Fast and Furious 4, right? But they're, they're, they're all <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm wondering, like you're saying, we've got this old storytellers, old folk tales, like history behind this genre and this idea that everybody's kind of building off of what's come before them. I wonder if that is something that is uniquely strong with horror because of A, the strong emotions coming through here mm. and B, just the history of how this, this genre has really started with things like, I was about to say started with the Brothers Grimm, but it goes back way farther than that. Like we've been telling scary stories. Since it, yeah, it does. I think there's an element of horror to to so much of world literature. I mean, I mean, gosh, think about uh, like like Dante's Inferno. It's it's pure terror. Yes. And I think that um, horror is a very very old genre. Uh, you know, I, I there was I can't remember who said it, but I re, I do distinctly recall hearing a lecturer talk about cave paintings, 
right? And and uh, the, the, the hunt for buffalo um, as being one of the first real horror stories of like American culture, or not American, but but of, of human culture, excuse me, uh, not to be uh, like US centric or anything. But I, th- I think there there is an element to this, this idea of, you know, horror storytelling or, or including elements of t- terror in storytelling as just being something of a, a universal kind of human acceptance. So many of our stories, uh, you know, going back to even some of the oldest stories, are full of elements of terror and horror, uh, whether they be literal, as they often are, um, or sometimes even just you know merely existential. And they're they're all meant to be. This is going to sound stupid because it's a story, but it, they're all meant to be shared and elaborated on, like that time honored tradition of kids sitting around sitting around a campfire or sitting around in a dark basement trying to scare each other by telling stories that either you're making up on the spot or you're remembering you've heard before and you're losing half the details. So you've got to make up some details for yourself. The, the growth of storytelling within horror is just kind of a natural fun thing, I think. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up this text is because it is communal, right? It is a kind of uh, experience that you can have both solitary and in, in a, a space, but it, it's because it's folklore, right? Because it's stories that were passed by word of mouth through generations of people. Um, I think that speaks back to like, like the whole point of recording it isn't so that you have it just as a singular solitary experience. It's so that you, you share it, right? You sit down with people um, and you pass the book around and, and you put on your voices and you, you shout screams at each other, you know, because that's, that's part of the fun experience of horror. And I think that's also part of the experience of just, just being a, a kid uh, uh, and building that literacy for children. How many variations of the man with a hook hand story can you think of from growing up? I mean, isn't that just the, it's the story, right? Right. The, the man of, with a hook hand just uh, coming after you in the dark. You know what? I, I don't even think anyone had to tell me a story about a hook hand man. It's just there, right? It's there in your brain. He's, he's either hanging above the car with his hook hand dragging across the top of the car, or they drive home and the hook's sitting in the door latch. Mm-hmm. Or he's sitting in the back of the seat, or he was never there at all, or he was... Uh, there's so many variations on it, but everybody knows this story and it doesn't matter which, which version of the story you end up telling, it's going to create the same visceral response in kids. Yeah. Yeah. I I think so. There's, there's just a kind of universality, I think, to some images of horror. And, um, and I think that's what makes a lot of horror fun, right? Is kind of that, that universality. So kind of bridging the gap, you know, again, between this communal experience of storytelling. I, I want to move into the 90s, which I think is really where a, a lot of children's horror really starts to take off. In 1990, there was a, a television anthology uh, for, for children of horror called Are You Afraid of the Dark? It was a Canadian production. It started to, it started to circulate through Nickelodeon. And I think it was a lot of kids' kind of first foray into horror, um, at, at least visually, right? 
And, and what's great about the show is that it's it's an anthology program. So it's a bunch of just a bunch of different kinds of horror stories that are told by kids sitting around a campfire, right? They all join this spooky story club and they tell stories to one another just to scare each other. And I think what this does really well for me is it puts kids into direct conversation with horror and horror storytelling, because now um, the stories that we're receiving are not told by like a witch. They're not told by, you know, some, some spooky, creepy adult. They're told by kids, about kids, you know, putting kids as the central focus of the horror experience. And I think that that was really novel for a lot of kids growing up in the 90s to see themselves reflected in these circles and, and have stories uh, kind of written and told to them about themselves in these, these various kind of horror situations. Yes, and I think that's really important too for giving kids especially a sense of ownership about what they're doing in their lives seeing themselves reflected on TV lets their own imaginations grow because then those kids go off and they want to try to replicate what Are You Afraid of the Dark was doing with the storytelling stuff. They want to be having campfires with their friends. They want to be telling the stories, scary stories themselves. They'll start inventing stories on their own and really flexing that part of their brain, maybe for the first time, because they're being told this isn't just the adults handing this to you anymore. This isn't just, even though clearly like Are You Afraid of the Dark, like they would have had a adult writers coming up with all these plot lines right of course it's it's processed and showcased to them kind of invites them to get involved in the process and that I think that's really like you said novel I think that's really important yeah the the word that you used was ownership right right um and and I think that becomes kind of the the general motif of a lot of children's horror through the 90s because I wanted to highlight you know, two really important um, series from the 90s. Are You Afraid of the Dark was the one anthology series that I think proved that there could be a space for children, children's horror, you know, in kids' homes. Horror didn't just have to be for adults. It could, it could be for kids. And not only that, it could focus on kids' problems. It could, it could focus on kids' lives and, and who they were. And so uh, the, the other series that did this really well was, of course, Goosebumps by R.L. Stein. And I think that many kids know Goosebumps either through the books because the books were, were bestsellers. I mean, I, I think the only kids series that has ever outsold Goosebumps is maybe Harry Potter. Maybe. I'll go look that up. Yeah, yeah, you might have to check me on it. I, I think it's the only one. But in 1992... You know, Scholastic started to put out these books uh, from R.L. Stein. Bob Stein was just a, a comedian. You know, he was a, a joke book writer for kids. Uh, and they came to Bob Stein and said, hey, you know, nobody's really writing scary stories for kids. Uh, you think you want to write them? And uh, Bob Stein was like, sure, let's do it. Let's try it. And uh, and he, he created this Goosebumps series that I, I think is just incredible. And I, I want to actually take a moment here to jump into some real texts because I think that the, the stories themselves are indicative of why this particular series for kids is so special. Yes. Real quick, though, I got the numbers. These are yeah. Wikipedia numbers, so take that for what you will. <laughs> 
apparently, apparently, yeah, Goosebumps has 400 million copies sold worldwide, and Harry Potter has 500 million copies sold. Worldwide. So just this close, just so close, <laughs> just a just a couple, <laughs> just a, just a couple hundred million. But still, I wonder if there's an element here of what you were talking about with the comic books of kids passed Goosebumps around. Um, you would go to the Scholastic Book Fair, you would get four or five Goosebumps books because they're thin and they're they're cheap. And I distinctly remember um, talking to um, some of my friends in middle school and being like, okay, I'm going to get these three Goosebumps books. You get d- three different Goosebumps books and we can just trade when we're done. Um, like we, we, we were very um, intentional about rationing our budget and making sure we didn't overlap at all so that we could get as many, as much bang for the buck as possible. And let's talk about how brilliant, how brilliant, uh, the Scholastic Book Fair really was like as a marketing tool, right. For a lot of these stories, because you'd have them roll around to every, every school in the country, basically. I remember even, even in my, uh, my primary school, right, we had the Scholastic Book Fair come in. Let me clarify, my incredibly conservative Christian private school, when I was in primary school, we had the Scholastic Book Fair. And uh, rolling up with just shelves deep of the latest Goosebumps stuff was brilliant. I mean, just absolutely brilliant. You want to get kids to buy your books, uh, you, you put them in their schools, and then you show you show all of the kids, right? Like what all your friends are reading and, and uh, don't you want to go and pick up these books too? It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So let's, let, like you were saying, let's, let's dive into a couple of these stories specifically, because I think Goosebumps is something that has that wide appeal that like everybody that's listening to this podcast right now, probably read a Goosebumps book. They probably have a list of some of their favorites. Um, I know you started a Twitter thread a second ago and people I did. I I totally did. I really wanted to know because I know that there are people of my age who, who felt the same way. And sure enough, we got a couple of responses and uh, not surprising the total, the the titles that they chose. Right. Yeah. So let's, let's try to constrain this to our top three, because if I start talking about all the goosebumps books, we'll be here tomorrow morning. I've got my top three listed out. Do you have a top three? I do have a top three. Okay, let's go. Let's go one at a time. You give me your third. I'll give you my third. And we'll go two, two, one, one. All right. All right. Uh, okay. So uh, maybe it's a controversial choice. I don't know. I think book number three for me is Welcome to Death House. Okay. That did not even make my list, even though yeah. I know it and I love it. <laughs> yeah. So I think, so Welcome to Death House is about some kids who move into a new neighborhood and they find out that something weird is going on in the neighborhood. They can't figure it out. Their parents are missing all the time. Uh, the other kids are kind of weird. They've got kids telling them, hey, I used to live in that house. And that's kind of s- just strange to feel out. Uh, and then I think they, they eventually find that their parents have joined like a zombie cult. Uh, and the kids were dead the whole time. The twist endings are a cornerstone of Goosebumps books that I really appreciated because I think this sparked my love for not knowing how stories are going to end. If I get to the halfway point of a book and I feel like I know what the third act is going to be, I have a hard time slogging through the rest of it. Even if it's really well-written, even if it's really exciting, if I kind of know where it's going, eh, it loses me a little bit. And this is absolutely a callback to the EC Comics run because EC Comics, every horror story from EC Comics 
ended with a punchline. It ends with an ironic twist. Famously in literature, I think O. Henry is maybe like the big one, right? O. Henry, the gift of the Magi guy. He always has these kind of like ironic twists at the end of the story. And William Gaines, when he was writing EC Comics, did the same thing. And R.L. Stein, having read so many of those EC Comics and being a joke writer himself, uh, puts those, those final twists in the end because I think that is kind of the, the expectation, right? It's, it's what keeps you guessing. It's what keeps you going. Every chapter of a Goosebumps book ends with something, something happening and you don't know what it is. And it, it's a big question left in the air and you, you just got to turn the page. You just have to keep flying through it. Yep. And I think just generally in book writing, in novel writing, that is one of the big things that everybody talks about very early on. It's like always end the chapters with something to drive them into the next chapter. Like you, you've got to yeah. keep them turning the pages. They, they can't just go to sleep at the end of a chapter at night. You got to keep driving them forward. Exactly. Bumps does that in spades in a way that's accessible for kids. Yeah, I think if you're if you're a writer uh, and you really are trying to figure out like how do I improve my book, how do I make my book more binge worthy? Sit down and read R.L. Stein. Just read all 240 of these darn uh, Goosebumps books, um, and, and like get a feel for it because even as formulaic as it may feel. It's deeply effective. So the, the reason why I think that this book, though, uh, coming back to it, the reason why it's number three for me is because it poses a, a, a question, which, of course, is centered around living a new experience, right? The kids are in this new space. They have no idea what really is going on. It's a new house, which is already weird. You're trying to get, figure out who the neighborhood kids are, you know, what's going on in this new place. And I think that there can be a lot of terror in trying to have to rebuild your entire identity in a place that you don't know, that's not yours yet. Yeah. And, and so I think Stein digs into that question in this book really, really well. I couldn't figure out where the book was going at all plot-wise. I think, you know, the reason why I think it's, it's number three on my list is because plot-wise, it was so hard to tamp down. I loved that he put kids in a real believable situation and then told us a story that really was more about, I think, the disorientation of being in a new place than it necessarily was about, like, zombie parents, right? Yeah, so little more about me. I grew up as an army brat. So my, my dad was in the military. And for anybody that doesn't know this, like the military has this really awful habit of moving their families every other year. Uh, so at, every two years we lived in somewhere else. We were in Kentucky, then we were in Louisiana, then we were in Kansas, then we were like, you just moved all the time. Mm. So I think that might actually be why I don't rank this book quite as high because mm. the idea of moving to a new place and just being so utterly alone as you're trying to piece together what that new place is about whether it's zombie cults or just middle of nowhere kansas um, <laughs> i think for me moving to those new places and being so utterly isolated for the first couple of weeks like that is as close to true terror as i think i ever got there's a big difference to me in like i'm scared of this book terror and like something in the world is dramatically wrong terror so i think this book connects that feeling of true terror for me a little bit too close to home and it just makes me feel like 
bad. <laughs> Instead of scared, it makes me feel bad. Like I don't want to go back to that that headspace again. <laughs> yeah, I get it. But for my number three, make sure I get the names right here. I don't want to. I want to be the guy that screws that up. Uh, for my number three, I've got Welcome to Camp Nightmare. Oh um, man, a classic. A classic. So this was my Friday the 13th growing up. I didn't get to watch Jason and all those movies for a long time for reasons that we already talked about. But as far as summer camp horror goes, this was it. And I, I especially liked the twist at the end of this one because we get this big heroic moment for the hero. Heroic moment for the hero. Man, yeah. that's stupid. Whatever. Uh, we, we get this big heroic moment where they're told to go hunt down their friends because their, their, their friends are, are right. involved in the bad. Um, and instead of doing that, the kid turns the tranquilizer gun. Way to, way to keep that kid appropriate. <laughs> on the camp council that's been driving them to do this evil deed the whole time and tries to shoot them. They're like, congratulations, you passed the test. Um, <laughs> not like morally deprave yourself enough to go kill your friends. Congratulations. And I just remember when I read that the first time, I literally had to just stop for a minute and put the book down. That's brilliant. That um, I, I'm a big Saw fan. Uh, the Saw movies. Okay. The first couple movies at the very least. I'm a big fan of them. And having those sort of morality tests built in was a big selling point of those movies for me. As flawed as John Kramer's ideology is and as as mm. messed up as all that is, that founding ideology that the people involved in these bad situations can do something to quote unquote better themselves to quote unquote prove that they're worthy of the lives that they've been given it's a very similar message it's a very similar callback to this and it's so sick and twisted once you look <laughs> the twist like i think the twist actually makes the rest of the book feel more evil like the parents willingly put their kid in this situation no and the counselor, <laughs> adult human being that was willing to have this kid potentially go hunt down his friends there's so much wrong about that beyond just the initial premise of evil horror camp that i think it echoes really well for me even up to the modern day you know i hadn't even thought of that um i think that's absolutely hilarious <laughs> uh and, and you're right i mean it's so much more messed up when you when you put it in that in that light I, I really like this story because I think uh, it speaks to uh, the, the kind of the moral value of integrity because it, it you know who you are in the moments of crisis is is really you know the distillation of your person and uh, and I think this is a good show of that for for a lot of kids. Yeah. So what's your number two? Right, so my number two is probably again uh, unsurprisingly it's got to be the Night of the Living Dummy. Oh, good. Okay. That's not yeah. either. So, so this one's about uh, a couple of twins um, and they, they find a ventriloquist dummy in the trash and they pick it up and, and begin to um, kind of learn how to be a, a ventriloquist. Um, the two girls are constantly in competition with one another. And so they both end up in possession of two separate dolls and the dolls just become such a focus of their competition um, against one another that they really start to miss the fact that maybe the dolls aren't all that good and in the big final twist it turns out that the dolls are sentient and they are looking to enslave the human race together 
it is so goofy and uh, just so kind of like classical in its horror. Uh, and what I love is that, again, it's not just about the scary dummy. Uh, and I know that you have uh, an affection for scary dolls for sure. Yes. I think that that what's so cool about this this story is that it really centers on the the sibling rivalry, right? And and that feeling of having to compete to be noticed by someone. And I think that Stein does a great job of getting into some of the the psychology of of just being a kid, you know, and 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 not knowing how to be yourself and feeling like you have to keep up with the people around you, especially if they're a sibling, that sibling rivalry being a real thing and having to recognize that perhaps that pettiness keeps us from seeing the real important things like we're being haunted by living ventriloquist dummies that want to enslave us, right? Right, so I've got two kids right now. Uh, I've got a little boy who is two and a half years old and I've got a little girl that's about to turn one year old. And I'm seeing this play out with them right now (laughs) to a T like this morning, we've got this, we've got this stupid little squishy avocado game. Like the the whole premise of the game is you take the avocado toy, you throw the avocado toy at people. Super cool. (laughs) But both of the kids, for whatever reason, have become fixated on this avocado toy. And Craig, my older one, uh, has learned that he can just go take things from the baby now. Hey, I'm bigger than her. <laughs> rivalry developing where even if he's not in the room playing with the avocado toy, if he realizes that she has it, he'll go try to take it from her. So I wish there was some way we could boil this down to a two and a half year old's reading level <laughs> and showcase it. To him. Like, don't take the avocado toy because the avocado toy will come back and try to kill you. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> there you go yeah that's the lesson that's the lesson at the end of the day for my number two i have welcome to Horrorland, horror horrorville darn it i did the thing that i said i wasn't going to do I <laughs> um, yeah there it is okay welcome to Horrorland. i love this one because it feels like in this story especially rl stein came up with a setting that he knew was going to be very fun and he didn't mm. really go super like a whole lot deeper than that. The parts of this story that really stick with you, that stand out to you, is just this concept of a horror carnival. You've got roller coasters, you've got slides, you've got all the all the fun things that kids love already soaked in a horror atmosphere. And just the creativity behind all of that, the creativity behind all of the, the scares and not the kills. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess the scares and the dangers. There we go. It's so unique and it makes such a lasting impression. We talked with Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark about how that cover is so freaky that it might Mm -hmm. draw you away from the book for a little bit. Like you were saying, you had to give it a 10 foot berth. I feel like this book especially has the opposite effect. When I saw the sign, Welcome to Horrorland with this festival in the background, like that was the one I was getting on that Scholastic Book Fair day. Like I, I was sold. Absolutely. I I love the presentation of this book, I guess. Yeah, I think um, rather unfortunately, the generation of kids today reading Goosebumps, I feel sad for them because they're not picking up the books with those original covers. And those original covers are absolutely breathtaking. Uh, They're so cool to look at. I have made it a mission to start collecting the old covers um, because we, where did I find this? I think it was on eBay. Oh, eBay. 
Um, I <laughs> bought a mystery box grab bag from eBay because I was like, I've got to have some Goosebumps book, books in the house. The kid's going to be old enough to hear stories eventually. Like I've got to yeah. start stockpiling a little. And they sent me this box of 10 books. And it was super cool. But like five of the books were the old covers and two or three of them were the newer covers and the other two yeah. were something completely different. Like, I think there was a Fear Street book thrown in there. Sure, yeah. But it's just so jarring seeing them right next to each other. Like, the new covers aren't bad, but they're just not incredible like the old ones were. Um, yeah, I I think that those old covers, those 90s covers, uh, just are peerless. I, I, I don't think that there was anything else on the market. And, uh, and I, I am just so obsessed with that, that visual, dis like, distinct visual style that came from a goosebumps book yeah all right so let's get into our number ones now for me uh the best of goosebumps has to be say cheese and die oh no that's not on my list really we missed each other we went three for three on being totally unique okay <laughs> see so say cheese and die oh, oh man i i thought for sure say, say cheese and die was was gonna be on your list uh, <laughs> It's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's about um, some kids. Uh, they're bored one, one afternoon. And when you're a kid and you're bored, there's only one thing you can do. And that's uh, a B and E, right? So they, they go and they break into this old house and, uh, and they, they are screwing around in the basement and they accidentally uncover this uh, evil uh, camera. And anytime you take a picture of something with a camera, it spits out a horrible end for them uh and so this kid kind of uh uncovers that the the camera is doing this evil work that warps whatever happens um whatever subject you take a picture of and, and warps it into something catastrophic and uh he, he discovers that the camera was created by this this scientist who really wanted to to create like a camera that could see the future uh but then his other uh, scientist, this this lab partner or whatever, stole the invention, and so the other scientist cursed it, uh, and now it, it only takes pictures of the bad things that are going to happen to you in your life. It's it's just utterly brilliant. I think it's such a creative thing. I love the idea of, of cursed or haunted objects. Um, I love the idea of uh, the object that can tell your future and, and you have no idea, you have no control over that, right? Because it, it's the future. And, and the question of whether like this object, like can an object actually be evil? Like, is there really an evil kind of sentience to something like that? And, and Stein just kind of like goes straight into it. Um, and he also poses this interesting question to, I think, a lot of kids, which is, you know, if you found something that you shouldn't have found, what do you do with that thing? And I think the kids really kind of struggle with that question uh, throughout the book of, you know, what is this thing? Is this thing good? Is it evil? What should we be doing with it? What is our obligation to the thing that we found? I love that because, yeah, that's, that is a big thing in our childhoods is stumbling across stuff that we know we shouldn't be touching finding dangerous objects and be like do we tell dad do we go give this to mom do we just put it back like what that curiosity and that drive leads to good discoveries lots of times yeah 
very very bad discoveries other times yeah it's a it's a great book it's got a, a really interesting ending and uh if you're at all in into like maybe i want to try out goosebumps book for my money i think say cheese and die it plus it's got the coolest just one of the coolest titles i've ever heard for a book at all yeah the the front cover of that one was a bunch of skeletons at a barbecue right that's right yeah and, and it's absolutely hilarious because that scene shows up in the book, but really the, you know, the, the book itself doesn't have, there's no scene in which they actually go to a barbecue. Right. Uh, right. It's, it's more like the kid just has a bad dream where he sees his family or skeletons trying to serve him a burger or whatever. And I think a lot of that is because the, uh, the titles or the, the cover artwork were just kind of handed to Bob Stein and he was kind of told like you know here you go this is you know write a book about this and so he would come up with a story you know to kind of fit the cover before the book was ever even written and as a result we get say cheese and die with this cover that has nothing to do with like the camera or, or you know anything to do with uh, the rest of the book and yet it's visually arresting and you can't you're like I don't know what that's about but I kind of have to read it. I never knew that creative process was backwards like that. That's so interesting. Yeah, he, he talks about it a little bit where basically he'd have, he'd have like a name or he'd have like a title or something like that. And he would have to reverse engineer it for himself um, just by asking weird questions. Um, and he'd, he'd come up with a plot, you know? So if he, he got a picture or he got an idea of, of like an evil hamster, he'd be like, well, why is the hamster evil, right? And he'd dig into that and create that story. Makes me wonder, doesn't one of the book covers just have an evil peanut butter and jelly sandwich? You know what? That wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> I feel like that's a real thing. And if it's not, it should be. At what point does the cover artist just realize what's going on and decide to screw with him as much as possible? Like, there's no way he could write a book about, oh, hey, he wrote a book about this. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it's the Monster Blood series that always gets me, like, because he named, you know, several of these stories, like, you know, there's like Monster Blood, Monster Blood 2. Uh, but there's one of them with just this evil looking guinea pig on the cover. Uh, and, and he's like foaming green at the mouth or something like that. Uh, and I can't get that cover out of my head. I, I just think that whatever marketing tool they were doing, I mean, they were doing it right. I, because every one of these covers is a banger. So knowing that about the covers then, my number one is Ghost Beach. Okay, all right. And it's the cover is very simple and straightforward. It seems like the, the cover creator, whose name I wish we knew, um, it, it seems like the cover artist just gave him a generic prompt and he went wild with this thing. These kids go to visit their grandparents at, at, a, at a beach. And as they're walking around, there's a big cemetery at the beach and they, they start talking to these teenagers that live at the beach. And the teenagers at the beach are telling them, oh, there's a ghost in a cave nearby. So all at once we get, we get going to see your grandparent horror, uh, just, just dropped off in this random new location for a summer, just make the most of it sort of a thing. We get cemetery horror. And we get spelunking, like kid version of the Descent Horror, possibly, all rolled nice. up and packaged into one. But then the thing I really appreciated about this was it had a double twist, which was not something I think I had ever really experienced in horror before. Like you come to know with 
with bumps, like the last page is going to be something shocking that'll stick with you. So they go into the cave and they find this ghost and the ghost isn't really the ghost. The ghost is a researcher that's trying to stop the ghosts that are really here. And you realize that the teenagers that the kids have been hanging out with the whole time, they're the real ghosts. So, oh my gosh, there's the big twist. There's this collapse of the cave and the kids escape and they realize that the researcher sacrificed himself to like stop the ghosts from haunting the place anymore. Um, and okay, it's over. That was a cool twist. Why is the book still going on? Uh, <laughs> house and they realize their grandparents have been ghosts this whole time too which makes no sense <laughs> but I, I was blown away by it I, I still to this day think it's got a very classic kind of a mystery ghost story wrapped up in it and that double twist was just it did something to me <laughs> I feel like that's the fun, right? And so much of these books, at least for me, it's all about the fun of discovery. Because even when you go into a book and you think, oh, I know what this is going to be about. Sometimes he just zigs when you think he's going to zag. And you end up with these stories that they make no sense. But, but that's not even the point, right? Because the point is just that it carried you along this journey. And if it's memorable, it works, right? Right. Uh, logic be darned let's just have fun <laughs> exactly and so much of, of these stories i think are fun i love them because it puts kids in the role of the protagonists they they really are incredibly well structured when it comes to pushing your reader forward um constantly looking on the the horizon to answer the next question and, and it, it just kind of pulls kids along in stories that they can really relate to I find what's so cool is that the, the stories aren't always focused on just like a boy or, or something like that. Like they really have a greater variety, I think, of representation, even of, of names. In Say Cheese and, and Die, one of the girls' names is Cherie, which I think is not a very common name. And I think that that just deepens my affection for so many of these stories because it really can be representative of any group of kids in America or, or Canada or, or, you know, wherever these kids are reading these books. And I think that the experience for kids it is kind of universal because the questions that Bob Stein is, is really trying to pose to his readers are questions that come directly from their lives. There are things that are relevant to what they feel and what they think and the situations um, that they're in, there's a, a verisimilitude to the, the experience there, even if the story ends up being totally fantastic. So let's power ahead then. Uh, speaking of the totally fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so once we get through the 90s, we enter the 2000s and a horror for kids, there, there's still a plethora of horror for kids books coming out, right? That, that never yeah. goes away. Uh, but we also kind of develop a new medium for sharing these stories with kids. It's not just campfire stories anymore. It's not just books that you find at the Scholastic Book Fair. We've got the internet. And the internet changes the game, right? I think so often what forms horror for, for anyone, of course, is the media that, that you're surrounded in. And so for a lot of horror creators in the 90s, right, they were drawing on the, the horror that they consumed when they were kids, right? That's why the easy comics is so important. 
But I think that in the internet age, now we have access, like unprecedented access to ideas all across the board. And so there's this, this kind of new space for horror on the internet where kids are circulating and recirculating stuff that they find, whether it be on a blog post or on a Tumblr page on somebody's deviant art, right? And they're, they're finding this stuff in middle school as many kids are gaining access to the internet and then just throwing that internet around, right? Or, or throwing the, that, uh, that media around at each other through their, their little uh, social media spaces. And what this does is I think it brings us back to this idea of like a, a horror folklore. It brings us back to that kind of, of oral circulation where we're telling each other the stories that we find most terrifying. And as a result, horror on the internet has just taken on this entirely new life, whether it be the, the creepy pasta that I kind of brought up for us to look at, or it be something else. These are stories that maybe have one particular point of origin and yet have taken on entirely new lives because of the way that the internet has kind of taken to it. So for example, Slender Man, I think is a, a great example of horror for kids um, that maybe ne it never intended to be horror for kids, um, but has become the, the kind of icon um, for some kids of this internet generation, right? Slender Man um, is uh, uh, the, the most recognizable creepypasta, I think, because of, of how culturally dominant he's become. And he originated as just a series of images, I believe. Um, and, and that series of images uh, blew up into like some, some narrative as a bunch of uh, young, younger internet savvy writers, you know, kind of started passing along um, this story and, and kind of growing it together. Um, and, and then there was a video game that was made of of uh, Slender Man that, that took off in Twitch communities, right? Um, Slender Man got so big that a major film studio uh, produced a very crappy horror movie um, about him. And, and I, I'm fascinated by this because um, I think the success of Slender Man isn't necessarily that he's made it mainstream, right? Um, but that there were so many people involved in this kind of snowballing effect of, of creating this, this monolith of, um, of culture uh, that so many kids feel a stake in, right? Feel like this is a figure um, that they can incorporate into their own storytelling. Um, and, and whether that be for good or for bad, because I know there are some parents who are really concerned about Slender Man. There was um, I think in 2014, there was a lot of um, tragedy surrounding uh, Slenderman as a, a couple of teenagers kind of took the joke too far. Um, but I, I, I think that what is interesting to me is just how, how so many of these stories have gotten legs just by simple circulation on the internet, in these social media spaces, as kids are encountering new horror and encountering new ideas and saying, you know, this is kind of crazy and this is kind of interesting. And I want all of my friends to see it because I think it's crazy.
with creepy pastas in general, so like Slender Slender Man as kind of the the poster poster child. Oh, that's weird. Um, <laughs> kind of the icon here. Um, but but any creepy pasta that we're talking about, I like the idea that there is not a fixed lore behind him. Um, any any Slender Man engagement you you take part in you've got to pull together ideas from lots of different sources. You've got to pull together those images that you found on this one weird, creepy website, along with these stories of, okay, some people are saying that this happened and some people are saying that this happened. Some people are saying that this happened and maybe, maybe Slender Man's kind of become an amalgamation of all of this. I think kind of like what we were talking about with the hook, the hook hand man yes, right. back in the day. Um, the fact that there isn't one set upon lore here, I think makes it even creepier than it would have been. Because if you can prove away 99% of the stories you're hearing about this through internet searches, as kids like to do nowadays. So of course, yeah, you'll go Google it and you'll see if it's real or not. Even if you can Google away 99% of the stories, if there's one story out there or one piece of this puzzle that you can't <laughs> find a way for it to fit, that's going to eat at you. Uh, right. that, that's going to become nightmares for you later on that night. Like, why couldn't I find anything about this? So I like the internet as a tool and, and, and kind of a vehicle for this nowadays, because it, again, expands the ownership of the properties for the kids. Yes. And like you were, you were suggesting, I think that's where the movie fell flat was they took the ownership away from these very creative people that have been driving the mm-hmm. story line and they gave it to one singular writer's room. Yeah, and I think um, it, it takes on kind of the, the new space of, of urban legend. I, I continue to look at, like, what what are the popular things with kids nowadays? You know, what really is, is kind of motivating them and moving them? And, I, and it, it continues to circulate around the internet and around these kind of, like, alternative media sources, if you will. Because I think a lot of what we think of in, in children's horror is still grounded in television, and grounded in in um, literature, perhaps, um, but we're seeing kids who are encountering horror for the first time through Five Nights at Freddy's, right? They're encountering them through their favorite streamers. And what makes an experience like Five Nights at Freddy's so fun isn't sitting in a dark room and playing this by yourself. It's watching others sit in a dark room and play it for an audience, right? I think that what has allowed so much of this stuff to take off, to, to become so culturally dominant, whether it be Slender Man or Five Nights at Freddy's or Ben Drowned or um, you know, uh, Salad Fingers or whatever, right? Um, it's the fact that we have this communal tie together, right? We can follow one another as we encounter these things, maybe for the first time or for the billionth time, um, and and share with with one another um, in the the meaning making. Five Nights at Freddy's, I think, is another one of those, like Slender Man, where ownership is so important to the people who are invested in it, because uh, there is no one singular lore for Five Nights at Freddy's. It, it, it was kind of a lore that, that was put together, cobbled together by all of these video game theorists and, and, and the communities that watch these videos together because there's just kind of this collective obsession and there's this need to kind of 
continue the narrative further. And wouldn't this be crazy if it were about this or about that? Um, and now we have you know whole franchises that just build out of these monoliths of entertainment um, because of the grassroots efforts to spread them from one friend to a new friend. Yes. And I wanna I wanna kind of dive into our last last section here or our last our last medium here. Yeah. I think it's fun that we have this big evolution in the possibilities for kids to engage with horror while also not losing the more standard approach yeah. to storytelling. So mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I pitched for this episode was the TV show Gravity Falls. This was a Cartoon Network show, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, one of the two. Uh, th this was a <laughs> television show uh, that ran for two or three was it Disney? I feel like it was Disney. Oh, it was Disney. You're right. I, yeah. Option three. It ran for two or three seasons. And I think it did a very good job of taking the horror genre, boiling it down to just its pure fun elements and trying to package it in a way that any kid growing up could access. Very similar to the Scooby-Doo's from back when we were growing up. Very similar mm -hmm. to uh, the Goosebumpses at the Scholastic Book Fairs. There's not a lot of internet sensational ability surrounding it, like maybe mm -hmm. a pasta. There's not a lot of, you have to share this with your friends and build the lore yourself. What it sets to do is just build this very fun world surrounding a brother and a sister who have gone to live with their uncle for the summer and all of the like, horror tropes that they engage with while they're out there. There's a big overarching narrative about something called Bill Cipher that's pulling the strings, making all the creepy stuff show up. So as an adult watching it with my kid, it's kind of fun for me because we get we get this evolution of a TV show, like the, the yeah. scenes are very well plotted out. It's not like Scooby-Doo where you're effectively watching the same episode over and over and over. Right. There, there's, there's a lot of movement to it. But with my son, um, he's at the point now where he's actually watching TV shows. He's having a lot of fun with it. They've got an episode where they're hunting for basically the Loch Ness monster. He's, he's cheering for them as they're building submarines. And there's this, there's, there's this kooky hermit character that he really likes and he, he cheers for him. Um, but there's also some genuinely scary episodes built in here. And he, I think even at two and a half years old, he's kind of getting this ability to process his emotions like we kind of began the episode with. Specifically, there's one episode with Summer Ween. So they're there over the summer. <laughs> they, they couldn't do a Halloween episode. So they, they made up this, supposedly in the town, they have this festival in June that is Halloween, but in the summer. So they've got watermelon carvings instead of pumpkin carvings they just they just summarize the entire thing but it's creepy um they've got this big scarecrow monster that's running around and legitimately terrorizing the kids and it, as an adult there are a couple of scenes watching it and i'm like that that's messed up <laughs> that is that is it <laughs> and the, the the art direction gets a lot darker than it does in a lot of the other episodes my two-year-old had to stop us in the middle of the episode and he said it's too scary and he just walked <laughs> okay he knows his limits that's this is good but then <laughs> later he came back and he was just saying he was asking for the scary show so i mean that that means gravity falls so 
we went through and we started watching a couple of episodes again and it was, it was some of the lighter episodes he was like no scary show he was trying to <laughs> back to the summerween episode because he wanted to he wanted to finish it or he wanted to engage with those emotions or for whatever reason he had this lore back to that thing that had been too much for him a couple of days ago and right he's two and a half he can't fully explain his thoughts yet so i don't i don't know what the whole story is behind this but it felt like this really good moment of growth for him it felt like this really good fun moment as as a horror fan myself i was like i know what he just went through i i know what his thought process was when he walked away from that and i get why he's coming back now i think um <laughs> but it's it, it's cool to see these mediums and this this genre through a kid's eyes again uh seeing them grappling with those things that i remember grappling with myself way back in the day uh even if i can't get those true scares nowadays necessarily like there are sc still scary movies there are still movies that scare me. Um, but it, it's not nearly <laughs> often it's not nearly as emotional when it happens anymore but it is for him so that's I don't know what point I was trying to circle around to there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I'm going to just kind of pop in. And, and what I think of the show and why I think it's so interesting coming from the perspective of, of you know, where is kids horror going? Uh, I think that what Gravity Falls assumes for me, because there are always assumptions that have to be made about your audience when you, you create something, right? What, what Gravity, Gravity Falls assumes is that the audience already has a kind of pre-existing vocabulary for horror. And so it, it presents a lot of the jokes and a lot of the storylines along a kind of track where it plays with our expectations of what's gonna happen because it presumes that these kids uh, who might be watching it, and I do think that it's, it's intended for like a middle school um, kind of audience, right? Right. Um, I think that the intention there is like, well, these are smart kids and, and they already know the tropes that we're playing with. And so kind of like a meta horror uh, commentary presents storylines using very familiar tropes and recombining them in novel ways uh, so that, you know, the kids can kind of engage with it on that very media savvy level. Um, it does not treat its audience like it's stupid. Uh, instead, it, it, it allows the audience to explore their knowledge of um, horror vocabulary, the knowledge they have of the horror tropes, and creates an entertaining piece of fiction that I think can be satisfying at any age, right? Yeah, and I... I think having the entertainment aspect of it out front so that even my two-year-old who has no concept of what's going on, he can, oh, right, right. The, he can sit down and enjoy the show as can the middle schoolers that are more savvy as can I, as an adult, like super horror fan. I think that is a lot of the success of the show is functioning so well at all those different levels. Uh, I think it's a very unique, special show. So I know um, you kind of wanted to close out on, on just peeking at what do we think the future of children's horror is? Uh, so, so I'll piece that out to you because I think I've thought about this a lot more. 
Yes. Um, what do you think is kind of, or what do you hope anyway, is kind of the future of children's horror? Okay, so my, my pitch and my idea here is I want to have a piece of horror that kids can engage with physically more than is available now. Uh, mm. By that, I mean, let's literally go out and make horror land uh, or let's go out and make some sort <laughs> of um, I think that is a big, big gap in horror availability right now for kids because they've got all these mediums of entertainment. They've got uh, internet creepypastas going on. They've got TV shows. We've got movies geared towards kids now. It's very accessible to them, but once they've got their hooks in, there's nothing for kids like, um, I live fairly close to a Six Flags and they do a horror yeah. nights at Six Flags every year. Uh, we've got haunted nights down in Orlando, Florida, where they've got, they've got some big theme for, for the evening. There is nothing like that that a kid could go engage with unless they are a very like horror mature kid. The haunted houses that are set up in neighborhoods are typically trying to be as scary as possible. So I'm from Georgia, so we've got the, the big haunted house around here is Netherworld. There is no chance I'm taking my two-year-old anywhere near that because he he would be he would be <laughs> he would be done. But I think there is this need to give them some safe space to play in. Uh, that's more than just maybe a neighborhood haunted house where you've thrown a sheet over a person and they're running around. Yeah. So that that would be my pitch. I would want to go out and make some sort of a kid-themed horror park that they. I could. think that's a brilliant idea. For me, I I think what I want more of is um is this kind of democratization that we see of horror through the internet um i find that to be super duper fascinating i think what i love about goosebumps and what i loved about um some of these other horror texts that we've talked about is that uh it really is kind of generation to generation um uh, a retelling, a recapturing of the things that caught their imagination when they were young. Um, whether it be, you know, the stories of, of easy comics or, or goosebumps or, or now this creepypasta, I think what I find most fascinating is the way that horror continues to seep into our popular culture and we feed it to, to one another generationally. And so, um, I'm really curious in seeing where horror goes uh, in the future. I personally want to see more anthology style horror for kids um, because I think that those books are just, you know, the stuff that I read growing up, the stuff um, that, uh, or maybe not growing up, but, but the stuff that I read you know, more recently and, and kind of try to fit it into my life. Um, the stuff that I love the most, that anthology style uh, approach of just a lot of different horror stories um, told, you know, to an audience of kids. I want to see more of that um, in horror. I want to see more of this kind of scatter approach of, of just presenting a whole lot of horror to kids and letting them explore um, kind of through themselves. And I think that the internet is the right place for that. Um, I hope that the kids who are looking at creepypasta today draw on that experience to create their own art for kids uh, in the coming years. But I really would love to see more projects done 
to kind of anthologize uh, the, the horror of the internet and allow more voices to step into this field, uh, whether they be children themselves or like I say, you know, this current generation that, that is kind of maybe aging up to a point that this stuff isn't necessarily relative to them, but or, or relevant to them, but it was still formative to them. You know, I, I want to see more platforms given to them for them to be able to explore um, their ideas in a space where there's there's just enough of it to consume that we can share it with one another um, and just experience it together. I want stuff that I can take to my niece and my nephew who are just, you know, toddlers at this point in time, but I want that media to share with them as they grow up um, because I think that horror has a real power, you know, like we've been talking about all along to kind of allegorize um, some of those experiences. And I'm, I'm very interested in seeing new projects that to democratize that process. That is a much better answer than mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm all for a horror land, you know. I, I will absolutely show up and I will bring uh, as many of, of the kids that I know to that, that horror spooky place. I think that's fun. Uh, that, that, that feels like the perfect capstone though. Uh, to everything we've been talking about. We've, I hope through this whole episode, we have shown kind of the growth of this and, and, and the potential here for kids and why it's so important for the kids to have th that sort of access to, to our favorite genre. I think that's kind of about, just about wrap us up for the day. Um, yeah, I, I think that's great. Yeah, that, that feels like a perfect note to end on. This has been such a fun experience for me i never get to talk about this stuff and i'm deeply obsessed with it so. <laughs> well anytime we can do a sequel episode next season maybe yeah that would be super. i'd love it i'd love it uh really deep dive into ec comics and i can go try to get my hands on and read some of them. i will bring so many titles i i absolutely love ec comics they're so great uh doing a, a top three style you know what are your top three stories uh would be a great little conversation to, to have for sure yeah. Trevor, for our listeners, one more time, uh, kind of remind us that here at the end of the episode, just who are you again? Uh, where can we connect with you on social media? Yeah, so I am the, or, or one of the editors for Slay House Publishing. Uh, that's S-L-E-Y House Publishing. We've got several books out on the market. Uh, even as you're hearing this, um, we are, are about to put out our new anthology of science fiction, horror, and uh, dark fantasy. It's called Tales of Slay House 2022. Uh, you can find any of our previous titles on our website, slayhouse.com. And I am also weekly co-host of the Slay House Publishing Presents Lit Bits podcast. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts online. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again for being on here. This was a truly fantastic conversation. I enjoyed this a lot and I hope everybody at home listening did too. In the meantime, don't forget to like, subscribe, or sacrifice the eye of Newt to the streaming service of your choosing. And we'll see you next time. I am William Sterling and this has been another episode of the Killer Mediums podcast. Coroner's tied bells to everybody in the morgue, 
So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. 